You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. According to a Florida Department of Education report released yesterday, this first year of a new attempt to pay teachers according to performance was painful. This new value-added calculation is half of a teacher's total valuation, and observations made by principals are used for the other half. Teachers are rated either highly effective, effective, need improvement, or unsatisfactory. Part of the reason for these painful results are its inconsistencies. In many districts, teachers in schools that do not give the FCAT have to accept school-wide averages for their value-added score. And there may be cases where teachers' value-added scores are inaccurate because they wrongly include or exclude students. Jackie Johnson, spokeswoman for the Alachua County School Board, says one problem regarding this new teacher evaluation system is that the state doesn't have a single formula to calculate a student's final FCAT evaluation, which is now used to evaluate the teachers. That's one of the major flaws with this whole system, is that there is no consistency from district to district. Uh, the state comes up with what are called VAM scores. That's they, they, take, they predict where each student, how each student will score in the FCAT, and then they look at how each student actually scored, and they come up with a VAM score for each student. Then it goes to the districts, and each district was required to come up with their own formula on how they use the VAM scores. The state absolutely refused to come up with one consistent system to be used throughout the state of Florida. So as a result, you've got 67 districts doing 67 things with those state VAM scores, and as a result, you see these wildly inconsistent uh, results from district to district. Another problem facing this year's teacher evaluations is that the numbers were released before many schools could release their final figures for teachers' performance. Because many teachers' evaluations have not even been submitted to the state yet, Johnson says the report is incomplete. They've already told districts across the state of Florida that um, we can revise our plans and send up final figures by the end of this month and yet they still went ahead and released a preliminary report, which they then withdrew and then re-released a couple of days later. Uh, but if you take a look at the report, not only do you see wild inconsistencies between districts, you also see that a whole lot of districts haven't submitted anything yet. About a quarter of Florida's teachers haven't even been evaluated and aren't reflected on this report. So the report is really not only inconsistent, it's incomplete. President of the Alachua County Education Association, Karen McCann, says the evaluation isn't fair to teachers because half of their evaluations are based on students' performance on all sections of the FCAT, even if the teacher only taught one subject for the test. We don't have a test in place for every grade and every subject, but yet the law forces uh, this part of the evaluation for every teacher. In Alachua County, it's 40%. So we only have statewide assessments that we use in Alachua County on FCAT, reading and math. And then, of course, we have end-of-course exams uh, that the state has given us in only three subjects. So the issue that has come up is that many of the teachers' evaluations from their principal that had been stellar had fallen due to the fact that if they taught students who took the FCAT test, even though they were taking the test in reading and math and they didn't teach that subject, they were being evaluated on it because that's the only state assessment test that's available. 
McCann adds that this new evaluation might discourage people to teach when more emphasis is placed on students' scores than on teachers' own merit. When it's a major part of your evaluation, and your evaluation is not only tied to merit pay, but it's also tied to whether or not you're even going to be able to keep your livelihood. Because in Senate Bill 736, it says two years in a row of an unsatisfactory, you're put on probation for 90 days and you can be terminated. Or in three years, if you have a combination of unsatisfactory and needs improvement, you can be terminated. And yet some of these teachers who are being placed in this position, their principals who are watching them and observing them every day are saying, you're a highly effective teacher. So if you are a teacher, are you going to be driven to want to teach? While there are several issues to work on for next year's teacher evaluations, Interim Commissioner Pam Stewart reminds that it's important to recognize that yesterday's report was only a first step with the overall goal of evaluating public school teachers. She adds that more measures are underway to improve the evaluation system. This year, in the 12-13 year, uh, looking at refining those evaluations and the measures used, and in addition to that, at the same time, while they are perfecting what they've done with the teacher evaluations, they are in fact beginning a new administrator evaluation at the same time. Along with the new teacher evaluation system, local school districts have to develop ways to assess the growth in student performance for 2014 through 2015. Over the past year, the Florida Department of Education has weathered criticism over the way it scored student exams, the resignation of a commissioner, and now the fumbled rollout of new teacher evaluations. Florida Public Radio's Lynn Hatter reports the department's interim education commissioner appeared before a Senate Education Committee Thursday, calling it a painful year. The most recent hit to the Florida Department of Education came this week when it unveiled the results of new teacher evaluations only to attract them the same day. The problem? Duplicate people being reported on the evaluation rolls. Interim Education Commissioner Pam Stewart says the problem was caused by incorrect salary reporting information. So if a teacher is paid from two or potentially three different funding sources, um, then they would actually be reported more than once. The failed education rollout comes amid a search for a permanent education commissioner after the state's previous one resigned in the wake of a drastic drop in student FCAT scores. That drop was caused by the state ratcheting up its education standards in order to transition to a national system. A new education chief could be named by next week. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Lynn Hatter in Tallahassee. The Board of Trustees came together for a strategic discussion meeting today at the University of Florida. At the meeting, they discussed the university's budget and where the university is headed in the future. President of the University of Florida, President Matchin, wanted those at the meeting to know that UF's financial situation is different from the national situation. Today I wanted to put the University of Florida's situation into context uh, in light of the conversation that's going on nationally about higher education. We have a, a lot of things that we should be proud of and, and a lot of areas where we are distinctly different from the national situation. And I just want to remind the board that as a precursor to a conversation with them about where we're going in the future. 
Also present at the meeting was Director of Master of Science Finance Program, David Brown. He says today's meeting is a place where they can begin to lay a foundation for the future. One of them was we're getting ready to go through transition both financially as well as uh, operationally for the university. We're going to have a change of leadership. We're going to do some other things. And we clearly see some opportunities to continue to advance the university. So we're trying to lay the foundation for that, basically. During the meeting, many uncertainties were discussed about the future. Matchin says he hopes today's meeting provides a platform to be able to make informed decisions about the future. Well, I mean, we are so unsure about the future, both in the state of Florida and at the federal level. I think, I think the conversation today will be the platform that we use to make decisions about what to do in the future. As far as the student body goes, student body president T.J. Villamil says the students are also looking forward to some changes in the near future. Villamil says one of the biggest things students have been asking for is a quieter place to study. So the number one thing on students' mind, what they've been saying, um, is the importance of having a, a study area on campus where they can go um, collaborate with their other students on group projects and stuff like that and really sit down and hit the books hard. Uh, that was the number one thing on the Syracuse survey about a year ago. About 30,000 students responded to that survey. And now during the Rights Union, that's the number one thing we're seeing that students really want. They want quiet space, uh, lounge space, because Library West is overcrowded and there's not enough places on campus. So um, this isn't a big picture strategic item, but on campus, that's definitely the number one thing they've been uh, looking for. And luckily today, we were able to pass the renovation of Newell Hall, $13 million project. Um, it's right across from the hub, and all it's going to be is a library without books. So it's going to be a, a very collaborative study room type environment and uh, something that I think students are really going to enjoy. Another item that came up during the meeting today was the discussion over possibly increasing tuition cost. Villamil says university presidents and student body presidents across the state of Florida have come together to try and stop this increase from happening. We have this long-term plan to not increase tuition on students uh, in the spring, right? Because we've had tuition increases five years in a row. And I think that's really um, bugging a lot of students in terms of the instability that it creates within the household. So I think today uh, was very important because we recognize this initiative that student government started called AIM Hire um, and really partnering with the university presidents. Bernie Matcham was a part of it, all the student government presidents across the state of Florida. And we're presenting a united front to the state legislature for them to realize that higher education is not an expense but an investment. So we're asking them to invest in us so that way the tuition does not increase. Uh, in the spring and we're, we're asking for about 118 million dollars and if the legislature commits to that pledge then tuition won't increase for the first time in a long time so I think that's very very important for students. Matchin says the board has the ability to conduct telephone conferences whenever need be. He adds the board will have a retreat, a retreat in February and they will discuss anything that can be talked about at that particular time. However their regular spring meeting occurs in June and this is where they will be making decisions about the upcoming school year. In the spirit of giving this season, Peaceful Paths Adopt-A-Family program takes off. Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM's Dana Winter reports it's bringing families together. Peaceful Paths, a certified domestic abuse network, reaches out to mothers this holiday season, making it a little more bright. Executive Director of Peaceful Paths, Dr. Teresa Beachy, explains what they're doing this year. Each year we do what we call Adopt-A-Family, which is a program where we match up donors in the community, whether they're individuals or groups, 
uh, with families that we've worked with throughout the year and provide them with a wish list of what that family would like to make the holiday brighter for them. She adds requests vary from toys like Barbies, video games, and basketballs to everyday household items like laundry detergent, towels, and pots and pans. Beachy says the Adopt-A-Family program brings joy. It is the most probably fun and, and rewarding part of our year in terms of being able to really see uh, the impact of our work in, in just the immediate needs of a family. Uh, it's wonderful to see the moms come pick up this stuff for their children. She adds Anthem Church donated $8,500 to Peaceful Paths for this holiday program as well as needs moving on to the new year. Since the program started 15 years ago, it has grown quite a bit. When it started, the average number of families was about 50. This year, there are 85 families, and there are only about six left to adopt. Beachy says the program strengthens families. Many of them you know, have been in situations where the people closest to them in their lives have really um, destroyed their confidence, destroyed their trust, have told them that no one else would love them, no one would support them if they leave. And for them to walk into a room that's literally filled with items from strangers who say, you know what, we're here to help, it makes such an amazing impact on just the hope that they have that their lives are going to be better and that their future with their children is going to be one that's, that's free of violence. The whole program stays local and includes Alachua, Union, and Bradford counties. She explains its importance. All of these families are, are people that we are either currently working with, so they're currently in shelter or currently in outreach services, or they're people that have only recently left services like within this year. And so this is part of the follow-up that our agency does with folks. One of the things that um, we know in terms of really helping women reach self-sufficiency um, and stability after being in a domestic violence relationship is that the ongoing contact and support is one of the things that helps. Beachy adds this is one of the ways Peaceful Paths reaches out to women who are once in the program. It often makes them return to group and helps these survivors continue healing. Beachy continues, saying contact Peaceful Paths to get involved for this season and many to come. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Dana Winter reporting. Anyone heading to downtown Gainesville will have the chance to view the Faces of HIV mobile art exhibit. Visitors will have the opportunity to learn about people who live with HIV and AIDS throughout Florida. The exhibit is located inside a truck that will, that will be traveling all over Florida for the next year, and Gainesville is the first stop of this year's tour. HIV AIDS Program Director for the Alachua County Health Department, Bobby Davis, says that people who are infected with these diseases often have a hard time integrating into society. They're ostracized. They're kicked out of their job. It's against the law to discriminate, but people find another reason to move them out. Uh, sometimes churches won't want, don't want them in there. School systems don't want them. Jobs don't want them. Neighbors don't want them. Family doesn't want them. They face all those kind of stigmas. It doesn't happen in every case. I'm just saying in some it does. The inside of the truck looks like a photo gallery featuring pictures of people who are infected with HIV or AIDS. Each picture features a short quote from them and a journal they wrote in for a month about the struggles they have faced throughout their lives. Davis says that showing the faces of people infected with HIV and AIDS humanizes the people behind the statistics. The goal of this exhibit is to put a face on the numbers of HIV and AIDS to humanize the people behind the numbers. We found that when people 
recognize a face and a story, they have more compassion. It reduces the stigma. When people have a lot of stigma, they don't test, they don't go in for their medical care, they don't take their medicines, and it cuts all that stuff down. It makes people real. Davis also says University of Florida students can get tested for sexually transmitted diseases at the Student Health Services Infirmary every afternoon from 1 to 5 on campus at no cost. Alachua County residents can visit alachuacounty.org and hiv313.com to find out more information about HIV AIDS, clinics, and where to get tested. The exhibit will be at the Alachua County Library downtown today until 5 o'clock p.m. and at the Super Walmart off Waldo Road today, or tomorrow I should say, from 10 a.m. to 5 o'clock p.m. This year, the Spirit of Gainesville Award went to Mary Hausch, the co-founder and producing director of the Hippodrome Theater, one of the city's most influential art institutions. The Gainesville Sun selected five award winners for more than 100 nominations submitted by members of the community. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Luis Geraldo caught up with Mary and found out how her journey through the Gainesville arts came about. Well, I've been at the Hippodrome since the beginning because I'm one of the founding members of the Hippodrome, but um, and that was quite a few years ago. <laughs> but before the Hippodrome was on the scene, we had Dance Alive here in Gainesville, but there weren't very many other groups that were um, cultural groups at that time. And the Hippodrome is the first, of course, professional theater that ever was in Gainesville. With the um, evolution of the Hippodrome and the growth of the theater and um, the um, growth of our community with the theater, that we are one of the oasis of um, culture in our whole area and you know, in most of North Florida. So then run me through how it got started. Where did it get started? Where did this idea come from and how did it grow? Well, um, all of us were students at the University of Florida in the theater department here. And um, we loved theater. We um, wanted to do as much as we could. And um, we found out how to do that. <laughs> we started um, our company um, in 1973 on Hawthorne Road in a little 7-Eleven building. And we did everything from the um, advertising and marketing to building our own sets to building our own lights to create our own light board to um, acting and directing and doing everything. So um, it was a real renaissance kind of group. We um, uh, and we wrote some of the plays. And so it was um, a pretty amazing experience because I don't think there's a better education than just doing it. And uh, we, we managed to do that at the time and um, started to grow from there. Run me through the, through the group and the dynamics of the group and the people involved. Some stories that you want to share with us. <laughs> um, we had um, six artistic directors at that time. And um, we all uh, did a little bit of everything um, from, you know, we were in the plays and directed them and, and did all of that. And um, we were all um, pretty interested in the acting and that sort of um, uh, uh, part of the theater. But we also, everybody had their specialties. Some people were better and doing the marketing part, some people were better. I, I was also a numbers person, so I was the only one who could actually do budgets and put those practical things together too. So that was part of my responsibility. So it kind of worked well to use 
both right brain, left brain um, as part of the development of the organization. Let's talk about the outsourcing and the people who you've brought in to, to teach or to help the Hippodrome grow. Um, I, I know that you've brought some major playwrights for some of the opening uh, openings of your shows. Tell us a little bit more about the, who they were and what they did here. Well, I, I think probably the most famous was Tennessee Williams. He came here, um, I think it was in 78, and did a world premiere of a show called Tiger Tail. And he was quite a character. He was quite ornery. Um, he didn't like the press too much. So he was always kind of getting into some little fights with the press, which was an interesting uh, experience. Um, but he was one of the best storytellers that I ever met. And um, at some dinners and other times after shows and um, when he would get, you know, very uh, animated, he would tell stories about the famous actors and different plays and different movies that um, were his. And um, we've brought in a lot of other playwrights since then. Uh, Deborah Zoloffer was the last one that came in. She had done uh, End Days, which is a wonderful comic show that kind of tells you about science and religion. And she also um, did a show called Sirens, and she was here for that production. And, um, and that was a beautiful, wonderful, and uh, well-loved production by the community. We brought in Lee Brewer, who is kind of an eccentric, um, alternate kind of playwright who did his own production of um, a play called The Saint and the P Football Player, which was very odd. And, and, and Lee is still out there doing shows in New York City now. So, um, but a various assorted group of uh, playwrights over the years. I, I see that the, the arts and the way the hip has carried itself throughout the years has not been to, to compete with Miami or with Tampa or with New York as far as having this big uh, industries where, where, where you're trying to mass produce or, or appeal to a wide range of audiences. The arts in Gainesville are still green and, and they're still fresh. Uh, talk to me about the, that cultural style or, or that style that defines the arts in Gainesville and something that I think was brought about by the hip and by people like you. Well, I think Gainesville is unique in having this incredible community that is curious and intelligent and ready to dive into any new ideas and perspectives. And I think that's part of the reason that we have real innovative arts in Gainesville. And everything from the visual arts to the performing arts, um, it, it's, it's pretty amazing to see the diversity of programs that we have and um, the quality of art and, and, of course, the museums. I didn't mean to forget them. But um, I think um, all of that is, is connected with um, this very uh, curious and adventurous um, community. That was Florida's 89.1's Luis Geraldo speaking with Mary Hausch of the Hippodrome Theater. It's been one of the most memorable football seasons for a small Gilchrist County High School. The community of Trenton might look a little like a ghost town tonight as many residents travel to Orlando for a state championship game. Nick Swain has more about what tonight's matchup means. Today at Trenton High School, students weren't exactly focused on their upcoming exams, and neither were their teachers. Actually, the entire community behind the small school in Gilchrist County is rallying behind the Trenton Tigers football team for one of the biggest nights in the town's history. 
The Tigers are playing for the 1A state title tonight in Orlando against Northview to top off their 13-0 season. Trenton High librarian and yearbook advisor Leanne Alvarez says all the school spirit and energy has caused everybody to get involved and show support. Well, our team is so small, and this is a big thing for a small town. Right. I mean, it's glory and honor and pulling together as a community. That's what the biggest thing is, is everybody just pulling together. It's all heart. Alvarez, who herself graduated from Trenton in 1982, says this is the most energy on campus she has ever seen. The Tigers football team and coaches left for Orlando yesterday, and several of their peers left on charter buses during school today to make the game tonight. Senior Kendra Stevenson added their team's success means a lot to the people and students in the town. She says a win tonight would be the perfect way to end the year. This is the first time we've gone to state, and just, it just feels like such an accomplishment. I know our team has worked like really hard for this, and it like brings tears to my eyes because this is my last game. You know, even if whether we win or lose, like just the fact that we got that far and it's my senior year means like so much to me. This is the last time I'll ever put on that Tiger cheer uniform, so it just is so special to me. Motorists traveling through Trenton on State Road 26 can't help but see the numerous banners and signs saying everything from Go Tigers to Win It All. And that's just what the community hopes will happen when the Tigers take on Northview at 7 p.m. in the Citrus Bowl in Orlando. From Florida's WUFTFM, I'm Nick Swain. Three people out of a crowded field of more than 60 applicants have been chosen to interview for the state's open position of Florida's education commissioner. Florida Public Radio's Lynn Hader reports the list includes the recently ousted education leader of Indiana. After losing his re-election bid in Indiana, Tony Bennett quickly applied for the open job of Florida Education Commissioner. Bennett is a supporter of many of the education reforms championed by former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and he's also one of Bush's chiefs for change, a distinction that puts him in line with former state education commissioners Gerard Robinson and Eric Smith. Also on the State Board of Education's finalist list is Charles Hokanson, a past president of the Alliance for School Choice and Education Consultant who worked in the U.S. Department of Education under former President George W. Bush. The board is also considering Randy Dunn, president of Murray State University in Kentucky and a former Illinois superintendent of education. The board will interview the candidates at its December 11th meeting and could name its choice for state education commissioner by the 12th. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Lynn Hatter in Tallahassee. There are many holiday events around Gainesville this weekend. While the Hippodrome State Theater continues its production of A Tuna Christmas and A Christmas Carol a few blocks away, the Acrosstown Repertory Theater is running its production of the Tony Award-winning play, Come Back Little Sheba. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Donna Green Townsend talked with two of the leading actors of the play, Mark Kirby and Paula Patterson, and the director of the play, Jerry Rose. Come Back Little Sheba is a show that I had done in New York State a number of years ago, and I've uh, always liked it. I thought that it would uh, play well in another venue and play in Florida as it did in New York. It's uh, it's the first play of a playwright uh, whose work I really respect and might ultimately like to do the whole set of his basic plays, uh, William Inge, who also wrote Bus Stop and uh, Picnic, are probably his most famous plays. And, but this was the first of his uh, kind of blockbuster plays. It was made into a very 
successful movie for which the actress who played the lead, um, Shirley Booth, won the Academy Award for Best Actress in that year. Was it an award-winning play as well? It was. It was written in 1952, and I think it had a Tony Award there as well. It's not a Christmas play, though, really. Uh, Not a Christmas play in the traditional sense of tinsel and eggnog and little boys lusting after air rifles and those things that we associate with uh, Christmas. In a broad sense, it has a kind of a profound Christmas message and then it deals with the same uh, scenario of uh, that all Christmas stories, inspired by the original uh, Christ, I guess, they, uh, they all are, quote, happy ending stories for people who are in desperate situations. I don't feel any reluctance in doing it in this season. I think people are going to see the relevance. If you were to describe for the new generation what they would get out of this play, Uh uh, how would you describe it to them to make them want to come see it? I think they'll they'll get out of it a a dramatic way of uh, showing the connections and the interest of older and younger people between them. And that's really the driving theme of this of this story. It's the it's the kids and the and the older folks. I want you to tell me a little bit about how many are in the cast, and then introduce us right. to the two actors who are here today. Uh, there are eight people in the cast. There are the two lead actors, who are the couple, Doctor Laney, uh, an alcoholic, and uh, the housewife, uh, Lola Delaney. They are clearly the leads. In some ways, it's their story. But there are there are six other actors who play vital roles in that each one of them brings a special kind of situation with them. Uh, the milkman who comes to deliver milk and the, and the lonely housewife who wants to detain him. Uh, and, a, and a postman comes, and, and he gets the same treatment. The next-door neighbor comes in and... It's out hanging clothes, and she calls her in, and she gets the treatment. Uh, and then the young couple. Okay, if you could introduce yourself and what role you play. My name is Paula Patterson, and I am playing the role of Lola Delaney, who's been married to my chiropractor husband. It was his intention to become an MD, but unfortunately, nature got in the way and forced a marriage between us a long time ago. Did you particularly want this role? No, it was just on my bucket list. The role you have is probably just one of the most challenging roles out there. Well, it's been challenging. I'm finding that my um, memory is 40 years older than when I graduated from college 40 years ago, where at that time I once played a multiple personality disorder with no distress at all. This time, having now been more grounded in my professional life, I can really see the complexities of Lola. And in fact, I even did a psychological assessment of her in order to decide how to play her. And what did you uh, conclude from that? I'm sorry, that would be against HIPAA for me to tell you (laughs) my findings on that character. (laughs) All right, well, let's also talk uh, with Mark. Uh, My name is Mark Kirby. And I play Doc Delaney, an alcohol recovering alcoholic. 
who has been sober almost a year. And he, as Paula says, uh, he and Lola evidently had a night of passion many years ago, and it turned into a pregnancy, which made that meant they had to get married. He had to drop out of medical school, and uh, their baby died, and they've never been able to have any more, but they've stayed together nonetheless. It's a lot of uh, tension in the marriage, I think, a lot of uh, repression. Do they love each other? I think they do. I think it's uh, codependent, actually, mm-hmm. but uh, I think I think deep down they are in love. What challenges did you face in playing this role? Well, I hate to say it, there's a lot of me in this character. I've never been an alcoholic, but this man's made a lot of mistakes in his life, and he's trying to forget them and go on. That's one of his key speeches in there. It's basically his theme, you know, we've had to forget the past. You get stay there, you get stuck in it. You have to keep going. You just have to stay in the present and just go on. And uh, there's a lot of things I would have done differently in life. Um, uh, and I really, I kind of really relate to this man. I really, I really feel for him. And that was Mark Kirby, Paula Patterson, and Jerry Rose talking with Donna Green Townsend. Comeback Little Sheba runs this weekend and next weekend at the Acrosstown Repertory Theater. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Stephanie DiNardo. And I'm Ashley Goodis. Stay tuned for a news update from NPR and the WUFTFM news team.